Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Let's get into this thing. I want you to open up to Matthew 28. All right, got your Bible. Over to Matthew 28. We're going to look at the last a few verses, the last four verses of the chapter. And as you're getting there, I want to ask you a question that will likely generate some feelings um, down, just down in the recesses of your soul, okay? This question is a little bit specific, I think, to people in Charlotte uh, who have uh, been here for any length of time. How, I want you to say, even though you're watching this, maybe it's with some family, some friends, or maybe all by yourself, you can, by a show of hand, just raise your hand, or you can just give me one of the, mm-hmm, like whatever that is, however you want to respond. Have you ever bought and assembled a piece of furniture from Ikea? You've actually, you've actually done it. You've made it to the finish. You're a champion, right? You know, you feel like if everything else goes wrong in life, I did that, right? I did that. I got that to the finish line. Actually, um, if it wasn't Ikea, maybe you bought furniture online somewhere, Wayfair, Target, one of those kind of things, you know, where, it, where here's the experience, you know, you looked at the picture online and the picture was beautiful. And you thought that daybed it's going to look so good in our girls' room. In fact, since we have two girls, we're going to get two of them. So they're going to look so good in matching beds. They're going to look so good in their room. And so you, you spent your hard-earned money on those day beds, and then you track the progress of the package. But then the thing that arrived was not the thing that you ordered. Because you ordered a day bed. You ordered two of them. But what arrived was a rectangular cardboard box that weighs 6,000 pounds. And because you ordered two of them, you have two rectangular boxes weighing 6,000 pounds each, and you're like, how am I even going to move? How'd they get this off the truck? How am I even going to move this? Who am I going to have to, like, cook for? What favors am I going to have to cash in to get a friend to come over just to move this box closer to its final destination? Right? Um, look, we, we bought a cup. This story is, you know, a little bit familiar. It's not just hypothetical, okay? Um, we, we buy these two things. We get them up into, our, into the second floor, of course, of our house is where we had to go. And I open up the box, and the only chance, y'all, all that's sitting there is a bunch of pieces, right? That's not a day bed. That's a pile of wood, right? My only hope in turning that into that picture online was the instruction manual that I had to like try not to pinch my hands as I slide the pieces of wood around to find the instruction manual. And hopefully, uh, if I can find the instruction manual, it'll show me what to do next, right? And it'll show me where the little baggie of uh, all the bolts and stuff and the Allen wrench, which I now have 60,000 Allen wrenches. If you need to borrow one, I'll just give it to you. I'm very generous with Allen wrenches, all right? But I had to find that, figure out, all right, how am I going to do this thing? Because the instruction manual will show me, all right, here's my next step. 
You know, here's where I start, and then here's my next step after that, and then here's what we do. And so the first one, I was like, everybody out of the room, dad just needs to go to work, right? I got to figure this thing out and do it. But the second time around, you know, thanks to the instruction manual, I figured it out. I was able to actually bring the kids in, and the second one, maybe you've had this experience if you had to do multiples of these, the second one went like half, it took half the time that the first one did. Like, we just got rolling because I knew what was going to happen. I knew what the next steps were. There were times in that first one where I was like, how is this a bed? You know what I mean? It's like doing all this stuff. But by the second one, I knew, oh, I know that. I know what's coming in about three steps, and it'll all start to make sense. And so I even got to let the kids come in and help because I knew where things were going and everything else. Listen, sometimes I feel like we kind of approach the Christian life like an online shopper like we do online shopping, like we hear sermons about the good life of following Jesus. We hear about, and we're, we're told that, man, there is joy, there is peace. Maybe we know some people that have been Christians for a long time, and we look at their life, and we're like, man, I want that life. That's the life I want. That's what I'm signing up for. But then when we actually commit to it, and we actually decide, yeah, that's what I want, we look down, and all we really have are a bunch of pieces and we don't know what the next step is. Where do I start? How do, and if I have started in this thing, I don't really know what's next for me. And there's a, often it's so easy just to get stalled out in, a, in assembling and allowing God to do the work in our lives. Because we're like, I don't really know what's next for me. And if we're honest, we have a little bit of trouble with the manual. Look, I just want you to know, this is what we're going to talk about today. And I believe there is a ton a ton of hope for you as we talk about what it looks like to allow God to build you as a follower of Christ, to figure out your next step. Um, listen, here's the, there's a, a couple of things that we said for two weeks now that I want to put back in front of you as a way of hope, and then we're going to keep going forward. All right, listen, the gospel truth that we've been sitting down in and reminding ourselves of week after week is that in Christ, you are not who you once were. Right, that, that's the truth of God's word that Christ has made you a new creation. But listen, there's also, that's gospel truth. And then there's gospel hope. And so we're going to talk about today. In Christ, you are not who you will be one day. Right? You're not who you once were. That's truth. That is settled. You're a new creation in Christ. But God is also building something in you. He is maturing you. He is growing. This is the language of scripture, maturing, growing you up into the image of Christ. He is building something. And today I want to talk about how that works, how you grow into who God is calling you to be. And I want us to begin to figure out what our next step is. We're in a series of sermons in January. We're talking about who we're going to be as a church. So if you're new with us, we're about five years old. So we're kind of looking back and saying, thank God for what he has done over these five years. Now we're talking about who we want to be as a church. Who is God building us into as a church over the next five years? An awesome time for you to check out Mercy Church to figure out if this is the right church for you because you're kind of hearing our, our heartbeat, core identity kind of stuff. And we said our vision uh, the first week, we said our vision, the, the picture of who we want to be, right, of who God is building us into is that we are devoted as a church to becoming a maturing, multiplying, multicultural church. That's our picture. That's the kind of church we want to become by God's grace. It's the kind of churches that we will also plant. And today we're talking about that maturing piece. We want to be a maturing church, a church that helps each person identify and take their next step as a disciple of Jesus. Now, listen, this might sound a little cheesy, but basically what I'm going to get at today 
is that the church is to be a group of building buddies working together to allow God to build something in each one of us, helping one another identify the next step God is calling us to take as followers of Jesus. That's the ministry value we're going to start zeroing in on. In each of these sermons, we talked about a ministry value that's guiding us throughout the series. So we got five of them. Today, we're on the third one. We got two more to go. Our first one, if you remember, came out of Hebrews 12. We keep the gospel at the center of all we do. We fix our eyes on Jesus, right? Hebrews 12, one and two. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He, he is the one that we focus in on and his work, right? So that we work not for our salvation, not for acceptance, but from God's acceptance of us because of what Christ did, right? Huge, that's the start. The second value we said is that we expect, this was last week, we expect God to change a life today. That was why we talked about the friends who took their paralytic, their paralyzed friend up onto the roof, tore the roof off to get that guy to Jesus because they expected that when they did, man, Jesus would change this guy, would heal this guy. And we want that kind of faith that expects that as we get closer to Jesus and as we take others closer to Jesus, man, he will change them. He will change us. Those are huge because today we're building on those first two. The value today is going to build on those first two. I'm going to show you that value, kind of lay it out for you very clearly as we go through our passage today, but let's just get into it. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, we're going to go to verse 20. If you're a Christian that's been in church for a while, you might have heard this before, and I hope you're going to see it maybe from a different angle. It's what I love about God's Word, that you can continue to unpack it and gather new meaning from it. I'm just so, so excited for our time today. So verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. So he had the 11 disciples because Judas was no longer with them, obviously at this point. What we know from the other gospel accounts is that these 11 have already seen Jesus twice before they're getting to this moment. So when they see him, those 11 see him, they recognize him. And their response is worship. They see him. Look at that. They see him. And they worshiped. One thing that develops the more you follow Jesus, the more you see him for who he really is, the quicker you are to worship him. Just to respond, oh, that's the one. That's the one who died for me. That's the one who rose from the grave. He is God, and yet God came and sacrificed himself for me. I am quick. He has given me new life recreated me into a new person and he's molding me into his image and he's given me eternity with the father, reconciled me to God. And so I'm quicker to worship the more I get to know him. They worshiped him because he had died for their sins. He was alive again, proving that he was really God, like he had said. You know, you think about this. They wouldn't worship him otherwise. They would celebrate. Sure, their friend was alive. That would be cause for celebration and not for worshiping him. They worshiped him because they finally saw it. He's the one true God. He did what he promised. He died for their sins. And his resurrection meant new hope, new life, new meaning for them. But then there's that little thing at the end of the verse. that's honestly frustrated a lot of uh, scholars for, for centuries. And it reminds us that faith is a process. It's a frustrating clause because there's not much around it to help us understand who the some are. Some of them doubt it. Most, the most likely scenario is you got the 11, and then you got a whole bunch of people that came up on the hill with them. 
And some of these others, they hadn't seen Jesus yet. The word doubt here is probably best translated hesitated. And it helps you kind of envision a pretty powerful scene. You got the 11 there. Just think about it this way. Maybe front row worshiping the risen Jesus. They know who he is. They're worshiping him. Whole life. Uh, he, he is everything to them. And behind them in the second row are some people who are interested enough to go up and check it out. But they hesitated when they saw him. And that's all we get. So we can't make too many inferences here. Maybe this is just a, oh, wait, is that, is that really him? Or maybe it's more substantial, thoughtful doubt, like there's no way because Jesus couldn't rise from the grave. I saw him die. But what I love is that Jesus's next words speak to both the worshipers and the doubters at the same time. Like he's talking to both of them with the same words. It's beautiful. It's, it's rich here. So if that's you today, if you're the, the hesitant, the doubting, I want you to hear Jesus's words and what they mean for you as well. I think you'll find comfort and hope for them as you're investigating Jesus. And I believe God is even offering you a next step today. Look at verse 18. We'll see what he says. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay, that is a bold claim. It, it's, it's complete, like a complete claim, isn't it? I mean, a little interaction here, audible. I want you to respond. How much authority did God give Jesus? All. All, not partial. There are no branches of governing authority here. Christ's kingdom is not a democracy where he exists as a forever president. No, he is king. He does not exist to carry out the will of the people. He was not elected. He was divinely issued by God the Father. How much authority? All authority. Now, if he has authority, all authority, then all that's left for us to do is establish his jurisdiction. Like, what does he have have all authority over? And his authority only matters to you The only reason that matters is if he claims jurisdiction that you are in. Let's take a look again. Authority. How much authority? All. All. Keeping this, I'm keeping that in front of you. Maybe that just needs to be your note from the sermon. You just need to write down like Jesus, dash, semicolon, colon, whatever it is, all. Right? All authority. Right? His jurisdiction where he has all authority is in heaven. I don't think most people have a problem with that. But you should know this lines up with scripture that calls the angels his angels. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.7. They announce his arrival. They minister to him in the desert, right? They minister to him in the garden of Gethsemane. They announce his resurrection and they join all creatures in worshiping him around the heavenly throne. He is the eternal king of heaven. He has absolute jurisdiction, and in the heavenlies, his reign issues forth eternal peace and joy. It's a feast in the heavenly city. Jesus is the good king who reigns eternally in heaven. But the passage keeps going. His jurisdiction is not confined to heaven. Heaven and on earth. And here's the rub. Here's the hurdle to faith for a lot of people. Everything else, though, y'all, everything else makes sense if you believe this. This is why I spend time here, because Jesus Christ, he is saying, has all authority over the earth. You and I, that's where we live, which means 
He has all authority over us. That is personal. You get that? Somebody is claiming personal authority, jurisdiction over you and over me. And this completely confronts a couple of major assumptions and worldview assumptions, ways of seeing the world. When I say worldview, just ways of seeing the world. This confronts head on a couple of major assumptions in the major worldview of the day. The first one, listen, if Jesus has all authority, it means truth is not relative. Our broader society right now operates on the assumption that truth is relative, not absolute. But if Jesus has all authority, then what he says about the world and the way it functions, that is what is true. Especially if he says he's the one who created the world. If he is the author of the world, John 1 tells us, and the one who has authority over it, man, then what he has to say is what is true. And to you who may be hesitant about this claim, I want to tell you that relative truth, which just means truth that is up to the individual, like what's true, your truth is what's true, um, that just means you are your own authority. Like in our relativistic world, we still cannot escape truth, the idea of truth, right? It's not that truth doesn't exist. In our world, it's just that we are each the creator of and judge over truth. That is a difficult burden. That's a huge, it's near impossible. In fact, I don't know anybody that's been consistent with their truth over the course of their life. But if Jesus has all authority, that means Jesus is the one who wrote the manual. And it means that we have somewhere to go to understand who we are supposed to be and what our next steps are. But not only that, if Jesus has all authority on earth, it gets even more personal. Like that's a little bit of abstract philosophical, but it's important. But the next one that I want to tell you is if he has all authority on earth, it means he determines my priorities and not me. That's even more offensive. What he says matters, that's what matters. He's the king. His assignment on my life, that's now my assignment. Plain and simple. He wrote the manual. He tells me what my next steps are. So I follow them. Now, the reason this is so good for us is because if he is the creator of life, the creator of the world, and has given us the manual for what our next steps are, and he says, John 10, 10, he desires us to have life and have it abundantly, then it's good for us. God's not a cosmic sadist out to make your life miserable. That's not who he is. All right, he actually offers us a way to flourish in his world that is far better than anything we can figure out on our own. Far better. He offers us a way to flourish, but sometimes, here's where the rub is. His next step, it's not what I want or it doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to do that, which he is telling me to do, or that doesn't make sense, why would I do that? It's right there that all this comes down to trust. Sometimes reading those Ikea manuals, I'm like, like I said earlier, why does that go there? What, this is not going to be a daybed, right? It's going to be just, I don't understand this. I don't see it. But then 10 steps later, I'm like, oh, that's a headboard. That's what that is. I see now. The space between what's going to be built and what is right now and trusting the manual Trusting the author of the manual, that's faith. That's, that's trust, right? That's the trust that Jesus is calling you and I to. To saying, I don't understand yet, but if you made the world 
and you've set it up for me to flourish, and you are a good king who issues forth joy and peace in his reign and purpose and meaning, then I'll trust. You get why I spend so much time here, because if you believe Jesus is the good king who reigns over all, you'll be willing to follow him in whatever he calls you to, which leads right to the heart of our message today, to our core value. Jesus, our king, with all authority, he commissions his disciples, that's a follower, his, his followers, to one task. Watch verse 19. Go, therefore, going's not the task, by the way. There's a little bit of an English, like, falling short of the original language. They'll try and do this too much. But the go there is a participle. It's going, which means as you are going, all right? As you are going, as you follow me to all nations, make disciples. There's our command. Make disciples. We got to pause and acknowledge this. This is why Mercy's mission statement is, and, and as best I can tell, always will be what it is right? Because it's the command of Jesus. We make disciples, right? It, look, I love being creative. We can get really creative with a lot of things around here, but we didn't need to be creative with our purpose because Jesus laid it out very clearly. Make disciples. And disciples are followers. One who follows in the practices and beliefs of their master. And the longer they follow, the more they begin to look like the one that they are following one close to Jesus, one being changed by Jesus to be more like Jesus. That's what God is building in each one of us. It's powerful and amazing because as he changes you, as he creates you into the very thing that he has called you for in life, as he recreates you into his image, that's where you actually find more joy. That's where you find more purpose, more meaning, more of that like deep-seated peace. So how do we make disciples of all nations? By the way, we're going to come back to that over the next two weeks. But you need to hear that if Jesus has all authority over all the earth, then it's only logical that his church be global and his gospel true for all people at all times. And so the church should seek to be a people of peoples, all peoples. But again, next two weeks. Now, how do we make disciples? What does he say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's one. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, baptizing and teaching. It's from these things that we derive the ministry value I'm sharing with you today. Our value is simply we help people take their next steps as disciples of Jesus. We help people take their next steps as disciples of Jesus. That's what the church does. It helps one another. Like I said, building buddies. Wherever you are in your faith, we help you figure out your next step and encourage one another to take it baptizing and teaching. So let's talk about those two, and then we finish with this awesome promise in verse 20. Baptizing. Y'all, we have people who've come to mercy from all different um, backgrounds, different kind of faith backgrounds, people with no faith backgrounds. Let me explain this briefly. When Jesus was beginning his ministry, he goes down to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing, because this is his job description, right? He's the Baptist. Um, and he says, listen, you need to baptize me. This is the will of the Father. So John does it, and then Jesus comes out from there, goes into the desert, and enters into his ministry. All right, and then Jesus says, here, go baptize people who believe this gospel message. Like, don't baptize them against their will. You don't just like grab them. You're in, you know what I mean? It's going to be something where this is a response. You share the gospel with them, and if they believe, then there's a public profession I'm calling them to make. 
an outward expression of an inward reality that's taking place. Paul describes baptism in Romans 6 saying this, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. So Jesus actually died, but we die with him by going under the waters of baptism, the baptism waters, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that's just celebrating the resurrection, so too may we walk in newness of life. So we come back up out of the grave, and this is our profession that we believe Jesus got up out of the grave, and he has given us new life, and from that day forward, we are walking in new life. Our baptism doesn't create new life. It expresses to everyone that we have received the new life that Christ has given us. So at Mercy, we say, look, all right, step one. Jesus set aside this step. Like teaching is where everything else falls under. But he set aside this step. Do you believe Jesus is the Savior who's died for your sins? Do you believe he rose again? Have you received that forgiveness? That's what gives you new life. Because remember, we keep the gospel at the center. And if you believe that, praise God, your next step is that public profession through baptism. So uh, look, my big question for everybody today, for me included, what is your next step? Uh, so what kind of, uh, that should be in community group discussion, everything else. What is your next step that God is calling you to, right? That's a question we're going to start asking more around here. Jesus always has a next step for us. He's building us, forming us into his image, calling us to trust him as disciples. And the first step is belief. The second is baptism. So if you believe, but you've not taken that step to be baptized, now is the time. Now is the time. I mean, this is, it's so, by the way, think about that act again for a second of baptism. It's so rich with meaning because it's actually a passive act. It didn't say go and baptize yourself, like go do something. No, your first step is not something you do, but something done to you, which is the gospel. You don't earn your salvation. You receive it by allowing yourself to be honestly in a physical posture, a little bit of helplessness to be submerged and then brought up, even in you are, even in your body posture, acknowledging that God saved you, you didn't earn it. That's awesome. <laughs> so listen, let us know and we will start that conversation with you. And if you are a Christian and you haven't been baptized, I'm telling you, that's your next step. Some of you today need to make that step of, no, I need to believe this. You don't need to get into those waters. You need to receive and then go into those waters. Now let's talk about that teaching, that second part. Here's where this value really gets it. It's forming. I can't stress it enough. Teaching to obey all that I commanded you. How does that happen? By people, helping people identify their next steps as disciples. Just over and over. Let me explain just kind of how this works. When you look at the rest of how this began to play out in the New Testament church, there's a few things that I see. First is that disciples are clearly made in community with one another. There's just no other way to, to see it. Discipleship happens in relationship. I can't stress it enough. It's where you can say, all right, here's where I am right now in my walk with Jesus, Ephesians 5.1, we walk with him. And you can say to others who are trying to walk into the image of Christ as well, and you can talk with one, or one another about it. You can remind one another of God's word. And Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, it's in community that we're actually going to 
keep one another. We're going to take care of one another, make sure we don't fall away, but instead grow into the image of Christ. It's Hebrews 12 that says, make sure that you obtain each one of you, that we don't want any of you, none of you fail to obtain the grace of God. Over and over in scripture, we see that discipleship happens in the context of friendship with one another, where we're real with one another. So listen, that means you need some brothers and sisters. You need some people who can commiserate with you, who can get down into just the mud of life with you as a fellow follower of Jesus. Listen, let me talk to middle and high school students. This is why I'm going to unapologetically tell you to get into a student community group here at Mercy. Because your friendships, Proverbs tells us your friendships will determine your future. And those of you that are in those groups already, let me challenge you to be courageous. Go first in asking, hey, what's your next step? Or even beyond that, maybe the better approach is going to be go first in asking others, what's my next step? Or maybe saying, I think God might be calling me to this next step. Maybe it's baptism. All right, whatever it is. Whatever it is, you guys need each other. Maybe what comes out of it is you just going to a a friend in your community group and being like, look, I know that the the Bible is God's word. I I keep hearing that, but man, I've never really read it. So how about we read it together? That's my next step. Maybe that's your next step. Let's do it together. Parents, you got to prioritize it. I know pandemic makes circumstances, situations weird, but it is worth it to press through and figure out how can you do that? How can we prioritize that? But listen, not only do you need brothers and sisters, and again, I'm not just talking to uh, middle and high school students, I'm talking to all of us, right? We need people who are in our corner who know us and we know them and there's nothing hidden, right? Nothing hidden. Well, listen, you also need spiritual parents. Scripture seems pretty clear on that. The disciples are made in a family. So that community, the language of scripture is actually a family. So I'm a, this is going to, this is a little bit like, this isn't the Bible's instruction, but mine, um, if you are over the age of 35, all right, because actually most of the people in scripture were far younger than that, so I feel fine just randomly throwing out 35. Um, It probably should be younger, but if you're over 35, you've been walking with Jesus for a little while, you need to pick up Titus 2, where Paul calls older men and women to be spiritual parents. We need you to be spiritual parents in our church. That's your next step. Your next step is to help others figure out their next step. That's, I believe that's what God is calling a whole lot of you to. And I'm gonna I'm need you to be courageous here. I know you don't have it all figured out, all right? In fact, if you think you've got it all figured out, please do not apply. I don't know, there's not an application, but don't. You know what I mean? Um, I'm talking to those who are humble enough to know that they're not perfect. To know that... <laughs> What has been built over time is not perfect. It's not the perfect image of Christ, but you have trusted the Lord faithfully through seasons and over time, and he has been kind to you, and you are not who you once were. And you can go to those younger believers and say, you are not who you will be. He has work he is still doing in you. I'm telling you right now, our church is busting at the seams with new people, many of whom are young and don't know what their next steps are. We, we need to plant about 20 new community groups here at Mercy. Like we could do that in two weeks if we had the leaders to do it because of the people that need to be in there, that need to be in these relationships where we are growing together as followers of Christ, where we are building buddies. But the problem is when our average group is about 20 people, it's hard to really get to know some people. I think that might be the next step for many of you. 
Seriously, you need to reach out to us and let us walk together and figure out what that's going to look like. Regardless of age, by the way, you might be 21 and there's a whole lot. I mean, 18. Age is really just a secondary thing here. But I know some of you that are a little bit older need to take up that mantle and be spiritual parents. Listen, disciples are made in community, but also what I see repeatedly throughout, just kind of if I survey the New Testament, I see that disciples are made intentionally over time. Y'all, we are in the, this is a, let's just, let's be real. We're in the age of instant, right? We have Instagrams, like one of the most popular things in the world, right? But the thing we all know is that good things take time. They, there's this stuff um, that my mom drinks called instant coffee. It, it's really quick. It's disgusting. And, and if you drink that, um, you're disgusting. Now, just playing. But it's, it's gross, okay? It's, it's not good. It pales in comparison to the real thing. How about that? To the brood thing. Um, there is food cooked in a microwave, and then there's food cooked in an oven. Oven takes way longer, always better. Like, my kids even want their chicken nuggets that are frozen to be cooked in the oven because they'll taste better. Like, that's really going to make a big difference. But they, they like it. Uh, I think about my father-in-law, who was a drywaller, and he used to be able to just go into a house and in a split second tell you if a builder slapped a house together real quick because of the cracks and joints that would easily reveal themselves in an otherwise relatively new house. He could tell you if they rushed it or if they did it right. Listen to me, Ephesians 2.10 is true. God has good works that he has created for you to walk in. You're called to become more like your savior. And I believe if you will give yourself to the process of following him, of following him as a disciple, which is what we call discipleship, which is becoming like Jesus, I think he will change you. And I spent all last sermon telling you why I believe that. It's a core value here. We expect God to change a life today as we commit ourselves to him. And while some changes do happen in moments, in fact, I believe he saves us in a moment. And I believe there are some breakthroughs that we have in moments. It will take time for you to grow fully into who God is making you into. But you will bear fruit one day. And maybe the image that I can give you on that is Psalm 1. To go and read it. He says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. And then he gives this image, said he's like a tree planted by streams of water. And I just got this like, as I was reading it a couple weeks ago, this hope for mercy that that would be how we would view ourselves, a tree planted by streams of water. It bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In season, eventually, as you plant yourself by the living water, that is Christ himself, he says. As you plant yourself by him, you can trust that over time, you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. And in fact, that fruit will multiply. It'll multiply. And when winter comes, your leaf won't wither. But you got to give yourself to planting yourself by the stream of water. And it'll happen over time. Here's the last thing that I, that I see in scripture and that I've seen in my own life Disciples are made as they take steps. (laughs) Kind of similar to the last one. As you trust Jesus enough to identify the step he's calling you to take and then take it, I think he's going to bless you there. Not just reading about it and learning about it, but actually taking a step. 
I had a friend, um, a guy named Doug. He's about 55 years old. He had been a Christian for 30 years, and he told me he'd never um, given a tithe, given financially to a local church. I hadn't heard that giving to God's mission through the church, he just never heard that that actually is Scripture's call on every believer. Um, so he and his wife, they hear it, and man, they just, they, they go and they pray back through it, and they heard the why behind it, which was our first value. We keep the gospel at the center of all we do because God is so generous to us. We, in turn, want to be generous uh, with the gospel and to the ministry of the gospel and advancement of the gospel mission. Our joyful response is generosity. Um, but if you've never given financially before, that's a huge step of trust. That's scary. And so he's, he to, he's telling me this story. He says, you know, so we started at 5% and um, 5% of our income and worked away to where we're giving away like 10% of our income to the church and actually more to, to other things. And the reason I know this story is because he told me how he was testifying to me how doing this unlocked so much joy in his walk with Christ that after 30 years, he couldn't believe there was still more joy to have that he hadn't known yet. God was still changing this guy after 30 years, through a new step of obedience, one that he hadn't taken yet. He identified the step, he trusted God, and he took it, and God changed him. Because we expect God to change a life today, because that's what happens. The more you follow Jesus, the more you obey his commands, the more you, I'm not lying to you, you unlock joy, <laughs> and it flows over you. So what's your next step? What is your next step as a disciple of Jesus? There's always a next step. Parents, what's the next step for your family? Grandparents, what is your next step? College student, young professional, what's your next step? Maybe it's sharing the gospel with a friend. Maybe it's starting up a little um, Bible study in your neighborhood or in your apartment complex. Maybe it's getting the courage um, to get out of a dating relationship with a non-Christian. Maybe it's getting the courage to get into a dating relationship with a Christian. Right? Whatever it is, maybe it's confessing sin and repenting to someone you love. Maybe it's extending forgiveness to that someone. Maybe it's seeking a biblical counselor who can help you sort through some things. Maybe it's just taking the posture of servant towards your family, towards your roommates. It's remembering that Jesus got down and he washed the disciples' feet. Maybe for a while you've been practicing entitlement. You need to flip that and instead be a servant of Jesus and trust that as you serve others and think less of yourself and make less to do about yourself, you're actually going to find joy there. Take the posture of Jesus. Look, there's some things as well that we're trying to do as a church. We want to take steps. I mean, that's really what that five-year vision is about. That thing is filled with to become maturing, multiplying, multicultural. There's lots of steps in there. And we're going to have to trust God with that. We want to be more generous as a church. In fact, our elders are talking about how we're increasing, we're working towards increasing our generosity budget, the portion of our budget that goes towards just giving away to benevolence and to God's mission in the world because we want to be a generous church. We're planning out training courses so that you can grow up in your faith. We're in the building stages of a missionary pipeline, y'all. That, that scares me. It's because it's a huge step of trust. It's not like, listen, if this works and we become a multiplying church and we send out church planters and church planting teams, it's not like we're going to send out our most dysfunctional members to go and do this, right? No, we're going to send our best. That scares me. That's a scary thing for me because I think, oh no, well, what will happen to us? I mean, I'm not above that, right? I'd go through that. 
What am I doing there? I'm trusting that I'm creating space for God to provide and God to bless. Because God calls us to make disciples who make disciples. And for some of y'all, y'all's next step is going to be to go to the nations. It's going to be go on a church planting team. And that's going to be a gospel goodbye that's going to be hard for me. But what are my other options? Just sit around? To, to hold everything to myself, all that God has done and has done in us? No, I want to grow more as a follower of Jesus. And that's a step in that for me. An intentional, scary next step. And not just for me, for us as a church. Let me close with this promise. Jesus says, remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. As you take that next step, man, I, those moments... I I hope, again, you'll take the time, just what's my next step? I want you to remember this. This is the, um, it's the constant promise of scripture. And I love that Jesus puts it again right here. It's the same thing, Joshua 1, 9. Do be strong, be courageous, do not be afraid for I, the Lord your God, am with you wherever you go. And now Christ has given this promise to his church. He is with you. That's not just sentiment. That's the promise, the presence of God's Holy Spirit indwelling each and every believer. He is with you. And as you take that step, man, take that in the the confidence. You may not fully understand all of like, what does his presence mean and everything, but I know it provides comfort. It provides courage as you take that step. And then he's going to change you through it. And in his grace, he's given you a church to do that with. Some people who will speak what is true, which is that he is with you, right? He is providing that courage and that strength to obey him and that he will bear fruit in its season. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your grace on us. Thank you for this commissioning where you call us to to go make disciples, to teach, to baptize, and to teach all the things that you've commanded. God, that's a a daunting thing. I think about the, the final product, you know, on the screen, and I think about the pile of of wood. Sometimes it sits in front of us, But God, I know your spirit is the one actually building. (laughs) So as we take steps, I pray for the spirit to provide much comfort to us, much courage to us. God, I don't want to be a complacent church. We got one life. And I know that my brothers and sisters don't want to be complacent. They don't want to watch life pass them by. So give them courage, but not courage for their own agenda. No, you have authority in heaven and on earth. So give us courage to be about your purpose and your mission above our own. Give us that courage, Father. And God, would you bless it? I pray that as we take next steps together, that whether that step is is baptism and we get to celebrate it together or the smallest little thing, God, help us to celebrate your work in us in the days ahead. God, we love you. We commit ourselves to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.